Amen. You may be seated. Please take your Bible and open to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 14 through 17. And as we've seen already, and I've mentioned last week, this is National Adoption Month. And I want to preach a, top, a, a sermon this morning on the topic of our spiritual adoption. I want you to notice, uh, take note, that if you have studied your New Testament, there are three ways, according to the Bible, to enter a family. The first way is to be born into a family. That is how we all naturally enter a family. We are born into it. Some of us would like to do that again. Choose maybe differently. Um, but we are born into a family. That is the first way we enter a family. The second way is to marry into a family. You can marry into the family. That's a little more, that's a little different than being born into it. Uh, there's difference in building a relationship and choosing to enter into a covenant relationship whereby you love one another. But you can be born into a family. You can be married into a family. But there's a third way, and the third way is to be adopted into a family. Now, the New Testament uses all three of these ways to describe our relationship with God. And it's the third way I want to discuss this morning because without understanding our spiritual adoption, without you understanding our spiritual adoption, you will not see the gospel as clearly as you should see it. So it is the idea of being into God. It's the idea of being adopted into God's family. This incredible truth. This idea comes with incredible implications. The truth of, of us being spiritually adopted into God's family should first bring us humility. It's not something that we did ourselves. This is God acting on our behalf. It should also bring us incredible assurance that it is God who must keep His promise as our Father and it's not ours as the adoptees that keep any of the promises. God keeps them for us. And it should also bring us gratitude. It should also bring us unity as believers. If you are here, you are not a son of God or daughter of God by right or by earning it, but only by His grace, all of us adopted into His family. So as I begin, I want to give you a few quotes from J.I. Packer's most famous, his most famous book called Knowing God. I think it's one of the top five books every Christian should read besides the Bible, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And this is what he says. He has a whole chapter uh, uh, on the topic of adoption due to its importance. Now, take note, I'm not going to read you the whole chapter. That's a good place for an amen. That's right. That's a good place. But I want you to listen to what he says about this, about our spiritual adoption. He says, the gift of sonship or daughtership to God becomes ours not through being born, but through being born again. As the Bible says, as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. That's John 1.12. He says, sonship to God, then, is a gift of grace. It is not a natural, but an adoptive sonship. And so the New Testament explicitly pictures it. And he says, in Roman law, this is a Romans ruled the world at the time of the writing of the New Testament. He says in Roman law, it was a recognized practice for an adult who wanted an heir and someone to carry on the family name to adopt a male as his son, usually at age, meaning they were like 17 or 18, rather than in infancy, which is common today. 
He says the apostles proclaim that God has so loved those whom he redeemed on the cross that he has adopted them all as his heirs, not just one. God didn't adopt just one. God adopted all of us as his heirs to see and share the glory into which his only begotten son has already come. And then he says, you sum up the whole New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of the New Testament if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's father. Now listen. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and of having God as his father. He said, don't you think about that phrase again. He says, you can know how much someone understands Christianity just by knowing whether or not they think of themselves as a child of God. You don't know Christianity if you don't understand spiritual adoption. He says this. He goes on to say, he says, for everything that Christ, sorry, he says, um, let me go back. He says, if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new, better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. He says, Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. And this is how he closes. He says, adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers. Higher even than justification. Now, for those of you that know what that means, that's a huge theological thought. That, that is an incredible statement. Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel, that the gospel offers. Higher even than justification. That means being made right with God, having your sins forgiven. He says, the traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. That's how God treats us. The traitor, the insurrectionists, those who rebelled against God, they're not just forgiven. No, no, no. They're invited to dinner and given the family name. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater There's a whole lot of people in our world only know God as creator and judge. But they do not know him as father. Because they do not understand the rights and privileges they have as children of God in Christ. So, let's read Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. This is what Paul says. <clears throat> For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified with Him. 
May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. I want to give you three truths about our spiritual adoption as we look at the glory of it. The grace and glory of our spiritual adoption, which is my title. Here's the first truth that we see this morning. Spiritual adoption is what gives us a new identity in Jesus. Spiritual adoption gives us a new identity in Christ. That when we come to Christ, we are made new. We are, we are made completely new and given a new identity. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Notice the contrast that Paul is making here. That you're no longer slaves. You are now a son. You once were not led by the Spirit. Now you're led by the Spirit. And you are now under this new identity as a son or as a daughter. Now F.F. Bruce, the famous New Testament scholar, he says this about adoption. He says, the term adoption may smack somewhat of artificiality in our ears. But in the first century, an adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to perpetuate his name and inherit his estate. He was not one bit inferior in status to a son born in the ordinary course of nature and might well enjoy the father's affection more fully and reproduce the father's character more worthily. So that's how the first century Roman or the first century Jew might have understood adoption. For us, <clears throat> excuse me, as adopted sons and daughters, Paul's point is that we have a new identity. That the father by his grace chose. The father by his grace decided to adopt those not just that we're worthy of carrying out his name because we were not. He chose to adopt those that were unworthy. Those that had rebelled against his name. Those that had committed treason against him. Which is why Paul uses the language of receiving adoption. We receive it as a gift of grace. You cannot earn it. You cannot choose your parents. So this point shows us the grace of the gospel. But the question is, the question is, how do slaves, how do traitors, how do rebels become adopted sons? That is the question. How does that happen? How does that happen? Um, Jen Pollock Michelle, who wrote a book called Keeping Place, Reflections on the Meaning of Home, she writes about adoption and our understanding of home in relation to us being rebels and us being, um, us being unworthy of being God's children. She says this. She says, adoption, as an important doctrine of the New Testament, speaks to the reconciling love of the Father. It also reminds us of the reality of sin and the necessity of grace. For though we might have once been God's children by virtue of birth, we are now only children by virtue of adoption. He says, you, she says, we cannot presume upon our welcome home. Like if you're just some person out there that thinks you can just walk into God's home. He says, you, she, she says, you can't presume upon that. It has been offered at a great cost to the Father. He says, she says, one great heresy of home is that there is any other way to enter 
but through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. To come home is at very least to admit the reasons for having left and to acknowledge the leaving as an offense to God. That in our sin, we have abandoned God and walked away from Him and chose our own path. And this shows us the grace of the Father in coming to us in Jesus by saying, I know you're a rebel. I know you don't deserve this. I know you're unworthy. I know you've committed treason. I know you should be treated as a slave. I know you should be in prison and under condemnation. And yet, and yet, I've set my affections on you. And I'm willing to call you a son and daughter through Christ. So the answer isn't that we deserve to be adopted or that we can simply make ourselves acceptable to the Father. It is the Father who acts and chooses us in love and graciously offers us adoption through what Christ has done for us in bearing away our sin and shame. Listen to how Paul summarizes this in Ephesians 1, 5 and 6. He says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. It wasn't our will. This is the purpose of God's will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. So this truth should transform our thinking, our believing and our behaviors. That God chose us in Christ when we were not worthy. And I'll give you another illustration from Robert Mulholland. He describes how powerful it can be personally when we recognize that we were chosen by God. And this is especially true for children who are the result of maybe an unplanned or an unwanted pregnancy. He says this. He says, I once heard of a woman tell of her struggle with this reality of being an unwanted child herself. Her mother was a prostitute. And she was the accidental byproduct of her mother's occupation. And although her life's pilgrimage had brought her to faith in Christ, blessed her with a deeply Christian husband and beautiful children, and given her a life of love and stability, she was obsessed with the need to find out who her biological father was. This obsession was affecting her marriage, her family, and her life. She told, she told how one day she was standing at the kitchen sink, washing the dishes, with tears of anguish and frustration running down her face into the dishwater. In her agony, she cried out, Oh God, who is my father? Then she said she heard a voice saying to her, I am your father. I am your father. In that moment, she knew the profound reality that Paul was speaking of. She came to know that deeper than an accident of her conception was the eternal purpose of a loving God who had spoken her forth into being before the foundation of the world. As we think about that, I want, us to, I want to point out here three truths that should ring out of this text from Romans about our new identity. That we have a new identity in Jesus. First, he says, first Paul says that our new identity means we're no longer slaves or strangers. That's who we used to be. We're no longer separated from God and alienated. 
No, in fact, we who were once separated from Christ and alienated from God's people, as Ephesians 2 says, who were strangers to the covenants of promise and who had no hope in the world, those are the ones that God has brought near in Christ. Those who were far off. We have, we're no longer strangers. We're no longer aliens. We're no longer orphans. We're no longer slaves. No, we are sons and daughters. Second, this new identity brings us new responsibilities. That when we are welcomed into God's family, we have new responsibilities and obligations. Paul says that there, if you look at verses 12 and 13, we are adopted to reflect the beauty of God, the holiness of God, and the grace of God. Look at verse 12. He says, so then, brothers, this is before verses 14, verses 12 and 13. Paul says, so then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That when we come into God's family, though we were treacherous, though we were traitors, though we were rebels, though we went our own way, having been brought into the family by God's grace, we are now called to reflect the name and glory of the family to which we now belong. Now, we have to make a huge point here. I don't behave so that I become a child of God. I have become a child of God by grace, and now God's Spirit lives in me, so now I live out of this new identity. There are a lot of people, and even probably people in this church, that think God will accept me as a son or daughter because I do or don't do certain things. And that is a lie. That is not true. That is is legalism, and that will lead you to hell. No, we are changed by the Spirit of God and conformed to the image of Christ by His Spirit and we live out of our new identity, not in order to earn a new identity. Listen to this personal story that Pastor Craig Barnes tells in one of his sermons. He says, when I was a child, my father brought home a 12-year-old boy named Roger whose parents had died from a drug overdose. There was no one to care for Roger, so my folks decided they would raise him as their own. At first, it was difficult for Roger to adjust to his new home. Several times a day, I heard my parents say to Roger, No, no, Roger, that's not how we behave in this family. No, no, you don't have to scream or fight or hurt people to get what you want. No, no, Roger, we expect you to show respect in this family. In time, he says, Roger began to change. He says, did he have to make those changes to become part of the family? What's the answer? No. A resounding no. He was part of the family by the grace of my father. He says, no, you make those changes because you're a son or daughter. And every time you start to revert back let me, let me back up. I'm skipping paragraphs here. Port stuff. He says, no, he was part of the family by the grace of my father. But did he have to work hard because he was in the family? You bet he did. It was tough for Roger to change, and he had to work at it. But he was motivated by gratitude for the amazing love he had received. And so he asked the question, do you have, to, do you have a lot of work to do now that the Spirit has adopted you into God's family? Certainly. Absolutely. But not to become a son or daughter of the Heavenly Father. No, you make those changes because you are a son or daughter. And every time you start to revert, revert back to the old addictions to sin, the Holy Spirit will say to you something like this. No, no, 
That's not how we act in this family. So the point of this is we live out of our new identity, not in order to earn it. And then the third truth is we have been adopted through the Spirit so that we can be led by the Spirit. You notice what Paul says there in those few verses? He says, as many as, as, many as are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. If you were to go back, if you were to look over in Galatians 5, Paul makes that abundantly clear that having been adopted by the Spirit and filled by the Spirit, we now keep step with the Spirit and we don't sow to the flesh. We don't live in the flesh. We live now by the Spirit and the Spirit produces the work, the, the Spirit produces the fruit of love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And Paul says there in Galatians, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if we live by the Spirit, let us keep step with the Spirit. So that's our new our spiritual adoption gives us a new identity. Number two, I got to go fast. So y'all got to listen faster. It's y'all's fault that this is going slow. Number two, spiritual adoption also grants us access and intimacy with the Father. Look there at verses 15 and 16. Paul says, By whom we cry, by the Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. A couple things here. We have access to the Father because of our spiritual adoption. Now this is an access, as I've hinted at before, that you did not have outside of Christ. Those that are outside of Jesus have no right to think they have access to the Father. This is part of what it means to come into a relationship with Jesus, is to become into a relationship by which we now have access to the Father. Before, we can only think of God as our Creator, as our Judge, but never as a loving Father. So sons and daughters have what strangers and aliens do not have, and that is access. Our Father is available and present at all times for His children. Which is why Hebrews says, Let us draw then with confidence to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and, a, and grace and a, to help in the time of need. The reason we can draw near is because we have access we did not have before. That's why the New Testament writers write other things like draw near to God and He will draw near to you. But it's not simply access that now the, 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 the veil has been torn and removed and now we can come into the very presence of our Father without fear of reprisal or without fear of rejection or without fear of judgment. No, no. We also not only have access, secondly, we have intimacy. It's not simply access, it's intimacy. It's intimacy. This is the language of family and fellowship. This is our Father who has promised never to leave us nor forsake us. Our Father who knows us. Think about this. He knows you. Your deepest, darkest hurts. Your deepest, darkest secrets. Your deepest and darkest struggles. He knows all of those things and yet He never leaves you nor forsakes you. He knows you, walks with you. As Zephaniah says, He rejoices over you with singing. He rejoices over His children with singing. You are His delight. His joy. And He's loved us with an everlasting love. So we have intimacy. But there's something else that comes with this. Paul wants us to know that it is the Holy Spirit who not only grants us access, but the Holy Spirit also guarantees and assures us 
of this access and intimacy. You see, we've been filled with the Spirit when we come to Christ. When we come in repentance of faith, we're given a new heart and a new nature. We're sealed and filled and indwelled by the Spirit. And this Spirit is the down payment. This is the guarantee that we belong to Jesus. Now look back at verse 9. All of Romans 8 is about life in the Spirit. Look back at verse 9. He says there, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So it is the Spirit that shows us that, that, shows us that we belong to Jesus. The Spirit is given to us to prove we are the children of God. So this, the Spirit is why we have access. The Spirit is why we have intimacy. And the Spirit is why we have assurance. Hear me. Our assurance of salvation is directly tied to the work of the Spirit in our lives. Which means if you do not walk by the Spirit, if you're not yielding to the Spirit, if you're not keeping in step with the Spirit, if the Spirit is not changing the desires and longings of your heart, that is a sign that you do not belong to Jesus. To belong to Jesus is to, walk, is to know the, the fellowship and the intimacy of the Holy Spirit in your life. Paul says in verse 16 that the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So this indicates a life of intimacy, of communication, and of communion whereby we fellowship and walk with the Spirit. And it is this intimacy that leads us to pray. Abba, Father. The language of family and intimacy. Listen, only I get to call my father dad. I've told this story before, but if I was broke down on the side of the road, on the side of the interstate, and I picked up my phone, and I called my dad, he would come. He would try to move heaven and earth to come, because I have access to my father, I have intimacy with my father, and I have all of the blessings that come with being his son. If you call him at 3 o'clock in the morning and tell him to come pick you up on the side of the road, you know what he's going to say? He's also, you know, he's also got jokes. He's going to say, call your own dad. I'm not your dad. That's the point. The reason we pray is because these things are true in our lives. The Spirit helps us in our weakness so that we can pray. In fact, Romans chapters, verses 26 and 27 of this, very, of this very chapter says that the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He says even when we don't know how to pray as we ought, the Spirit will intercede for us. So our spiritual adoption grants us access and intimacy with the Father and assurance. And finally, the spiritual adoption guarantees us an inheritance. Adoption not only gives us a new identity, it not only gives us access, it gives us an inheritance. It guarantees an inheritance. Look at verse 17. Paul says, after speaking about us receiving the spirit of adoption, he says, and if children, then heirs. If you are a son or daughter, you are an heir, an heir of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. This is the hope of the gospel, that God is not just for me in this life alone. No, I have an inheritance waiting on me because of Christ. I am an heir. Our adoption comes with a guarantee of our inheritance. All of us in this room, if you are a child of God, we share equally in the inheritance of Christ together as brothers and sisters. 
In fact, all of heaven, all of God, all of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Blessed Trinity are all at work guaranteeing to bring about the determined outcome to make sure our inheritance is sure. In fact, if you were to look down in Romans 8, keep looking down at verses 28 following, some of our favorite verses in all the Bible come as a guarantee because of our inheritance, because of our adoption in Christ. He says, we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's one of the greatest promises in all the Bible. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is a family. And those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. We could add there, all of those he called, he also adopted. He brought into his family. That's what Paul has already said. He says, what, that, what, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son. The father did not spare Jesus, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Our inheritance is sure. Now, I want to conclude this way. The promise of our inheritance the promise is that we will get the Father forever. That is the promise of our adoption. That we get the Father. If we have the Father, we have the Son. If we have the Son, we have the Father. Hear me. Eternal life is not about stuff. It's not about streets of gold or mansions or glorified bodies or seeing our loved ones, though all of those things are true. They're all true. That's icing on cake. That's not the substance. It's not what our inheritance is really about. Our inheritance is that we get the Father. We get the blessing of seeing and enjoying the Father forever. Forever dwelling in His glorious presence, seeing His face, and delighting in Him. That is the great promise of all the Bible. In fact, Revelation ends this way. He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's how all the Bible ends. That's how all of history ends. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain for the former things have passed away. He says, behold, I'm making all things new. The promise of our inheritance is that we get to spend eternity delighting and glorifying God the Father with the Son, Jesus. That is the inheritance of our adoption. So this morning, if you know Jesus, you have a new identity because you've been adopted into his family. You have a new identity. Secondly, you have access and intimacy with the Father. It should lead to you praying differently. And finally, you have an inheritance that cannot be shaken. It is kept reserved for you in heaven and it will not be taken from you. It is the most sure thing in your entire existence. And I want to end this way as, as I close. If you don't know Jesus, none of those things are true. You are a stranger. You are separated. The Bible says that our sins have separated us from God. That there is a barrier that we cannot pass through. That you cannot walk into God's family and say, hey, I belong to you now. No. 
You have to come in repentance and faith, turning from your sin, calling on Jesus as Lord, not trusting in anything you've ever done. That is the invitation of the gospel to be a son and daughter of the king. You have to leave your sin, come to Jesus. Forsake all, follow him. Take up your cross, walk to Calvary. That is the call of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray now that you would bless this time that we've opened your word. I pray that it's been incredibly encouraging to us. That, Father, we would live out of our new identity. Father, that we would recognize our access and intimacy with you. And we would show it. That, Father, we would speak of you as Father. That we would draw near to you intimately, day by day, resting in you. And, Father, we would recognize that our inheritance is sure. And, Father, all of this is because of the beauty and the glory of your purposes in adopting us into your family. So, Father, speak to us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.